Headliner Radio, the creative voice. Our guest on today's podcast is one of British house music's unsung heroes, Luke Solomon, who since kicking off his DJ career in the 90s has built up an impressive track record of underground success. So, hi Luke, thank you so much for joining us today. How are you? Yes, uh, yeah, I'm good. Good, good, glad to hear it. Whereabouts are you? I'm in um, North London. North London, lovely. And is that where you live or is that where your studio is or is that yeah, no, both? That, that's, that's, uh, it's both, both. I've got a studio at home in North London and then uh, we have a studio at Defected HQ, um, which is in Old Street in central London. Mm, okay. uh, so I'm, cur- I'm currently in home studio. I see. And just uh, for the purposes of our listeners off air, you were saying you've just been you know, immersed in a ton of music. What are you working on at the moment? Um, I am working on Honey Dijon's album. Oh, exciting. Are you allowed to tell us anything about that or is it under wraps? Yeah, yeah. No, no, no. We, we literally, we just come to the end of the album. We, we thought we'd finished and lockdown had happened. And then we were actually, you know what, let's go back in and just start writing more music. Um, but yeah, so we actually were like, okay, let's go back in the studio. And as we've got a lot of time on our hands, let's do some more writing and see what happens. So we essentially about, um, close to a year and a half, two years ago, had about 12 or 13 tracks done. And then during lockdown, probably wrote another 15 or 16, maybe more. Um, and then we've just narrowed those down to the kind of key album tracks and uh, we're sort of aiming to close on it all at the end of this year with some singles lined up and stuff. But um, yes, there's, there's, there's tons of, of stuff. Great, I would say great stuff is actually great stuff. We'll blow our own trumpets. But um, yeah, we've got features from Eve. Um, we worked with, I worked with, me and Honey worked with Eve during lockdown, which was amazing. Um, Channel Trez, uh, Pablo Vitar. Um, yeah, there's a whole uh, mixture of people on the album, and it's a bit of a kind of autobiographical uh, journey of Honey's sort of life and persona and all of those things. So, uh, yeah, yeah, that's ex- that's exciting. Okay, brilliant. Well, it sounds like you've been really prolific then during the lockdown, which wasn't the same for everyone. You know, you might think, oh, great, time to buckle down, but it doesn't mean you're automatically creative, though, does it? Um, no, interestingly, I think maybe it's from experience, but the um, the 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 process of being creative and writing during times where you uh, need to um, when stuff is going on, when when it when life's not great and things, are, I, I having a history of uh, quite a a roller coaster of a life i've always kind of drawn from things situations so the idea and concept of being able to write around scenarios and not necessarily about the subject but about what you're going through but being able to kind of draw on creativity and uh, and work and be creative during those periods i i've never really struggled with um so i uh actually between myself honey and chris penny who's our other production partner we were we just didn't stop i mean that's not even the tip of the iceberg of what we did right we actually been working on a kind of secret uh project which which i can't talk about yet unfortunately and then along with honey and chris and yeah so lots of different things um so yeah no i i didn't really struggle with that to be honest in fact i found it easier to write 
Oh, really? And are you the type of person that has, let's say, studio sessions blocked out for, you know, word, uh, if you want to call it that, you know, and then you're going to sit down and be creative? Or do you find that you just kind of, inspiration just comes to you and then you sort of want to no, get it down? I, no, I've, le- I've learned to draw. Uh, essentially what I do is I have to have concepts or everything. And I think having some kind of conceptual idea based around something that you want to write about is the initial process. And then the idea of, okay, well, how do we translate that into some kind of form of audio is usually um it's usually ad hoc so it'll be it'll it'll come from whether it's beats or notes or voice notes or melodies or any of those things I don't really go okay I need to do this on Tuesday or it's stuff I'll do on the fly and then it'll kind of find its way into one of the two studios either whether it's writing at home um, or whether it's like okay we've got something down and we need to go and track uh, various bits and pieces in the defected studios um it, it, it's kind of case by case basis really mm. and what about um what is a day in the life of luke solomon looking like at the moment these days are you pretty much <laughs> hunkered down in the studio are you doing i don't know the school run it sounds like what you're up to no uh no i i so multitude of hats a and r processor of the dailies or record label running situations where it involves uh being uh, very hands-on amongst all of the defected Glitterbox Classic A&R team um, and the day-to-day running of Classic uh, with the team over at Defected HQ. Uh, and then alongside that, sort of managing and producing Honey Dijon, um, along with uh, DJing, gigging, as we're back into those things and then being in the studio. So it's a lot of things. A lot going on, yeah, I can tell. <laughs> always, always, always. I, I'm, I, I thrive from being. I mean, interestingly, you know, lockdown was what it was, and uh, we made the most of a of a situation, which was the, the the mantra was let's just write and record and do all those things. And now coming out the other side, it's sort of from zero to a thousand miles an hour. Everyone wants to do gigs. All the events are back. All of the things are going on in the office. People are sort of starting to feel a lot more inspired Mm -hmm. again. So there's just, yeah, there's just a lot. There's always been a lot going on. I like working. It's just, that's always how how I've been. Mm. Yeah, same. It's nice to be kept busy, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's family life. Oh, of course. Of course. And there's that. <laughs> Don't want to get you in trouble there. <laughs> um, well, my about- boys, my boys are older now, so they kind of they they they're at, you know they're at, one of them's at film school, and um, so he's doing that. So they're both sort of very creative. The other one's doing GCSEs. So there's you know it's not quite as hands on as it was. It's mm. more. Uh, trying to keep them on the on the train tracks yes yes uh, i can imagine <laughs> yeah. so what about when um when you were a bit younger then before you get into career what were you into as a child in terms of music were you super into it did you always see or hope that you might get into the industry in some way uh music obsessive since is for a very young age uh i didn't realize that it could be a job i don't my mum was a, an art teacher and is uh, she's retired now but so I was always drawn to creativity because I would have to stay on after school and paint sets and do all these different things and so I'd always had and then my uncle who I was very close to was an architect and so he always um, 
sort of creativity was just always around me and music uh, was something that I was just a hobbyist. I was old enough to kind of really um, sort of be able to go and buy music and spend my pocket money every week on buying and collecting and all those things. But it didn't really sort of dawn on me till a lot later on that I was able to potentially make a living out of that. And I always thought I wanted to be either an architect or an interior designer or graphic designer. And then suddenly it kind of was like, oh, actually, hang on a minute. This is something that I'm really into and sort of collecting records and turning that into a thing and playing them to people. And and so sort of DJing was born from that. And then the production side of it kind of happened uh, organically as part and parcel of being a DJ for the most part. Mm, gotcha. And uh, you mentioned your pocket money there, so I'm intrigued. What did you spend this pocket money on? What was the uh, first music you bought, do you think? Uh, it was a mixture of stuff. I mean, seven inches, and it was going to the local shop and buying um, uh, things that were around in the charts in the 80s, early 80s. And in all honesty, sort of in looking back at that, it was even if it was potluck i mean there was so much amazing music around that whether it was a culture club single or whether it was duran duran or spando ballet or anything that was around at the time i mean those a lot of those records have traveled well so um it, it was any number of those things and then cassettes was the other thing i, I was into the police and texas me like runners and it was quite a mishmash of things but i knew I had a very specific taste at a very young age um, and that kind of progressed. I moved and we lived in Cyprus. Um, um, I think I must have buy. I must have bought a couple of seven inches, a few seven inches for pre 10, 11 years old and then um, cassettes and then it was bootleg cassettes in Cyprus because you couldn't buy records or there were, there were record, they were bootleg shops so you could go and choose two records and then they'd, record them onto the A and B side of a cassette. Um, and then that's when I kind of discovered other things like prints predominantly. And then that was a kind of formative change in my life of uh, taste and what uh, what spoke to me. And and that became an obsession with uh, you know, a lot of black music along with, and that it kind of progressed into a lot of kind of hippie stoner music. So there was a real mishmash. There, all, there always, there still is. Mm. Yeah. And with um, that as your background, as uh, your taste in music back then, and what you were influenced by, how did you get into this house music scene? Where did this fixation begin for that? So I moved back to uh, the UK in 1985-86. I was a breakdance obsessive, and hip hop was predominantly what. The, the music that I listened to at that age, so 85, 86. And then um, 87, I was at sixth form and um, <clears throat> there were things that were starting to kind of creep in uh, into my kind of peripheral vision of music I was hearing. I was going, oh, what's this? This is uh, this doesn't sound like anything else. And then there was the explosion, Summer of Love, uh, rave culture, uh, all of the things that came with rave culture was that kind of ex mental exploration, <laughs> and uh, and uh, and then uh, discovering that this music that I was hearing that sounded like it was out of from out of space sounded even better when you were kind of exploring your own mind. So that was uh, the sudden thing of like, oh, this is a kick drum, and this is what is this, and then. Uh, growing up in sort of Bristol and Western Supermare, we were just suddenly it was it was there 
there in front of us it was like oh my goodness this is this is the future this is me this is what i want to listen to i don't i'm not interested in anything else um just give me dance music and you know it was always you know our, the, the morning after would be sort of experimenting in different music and things that we listened to because it sounded great but predominantly it was trying to hunt down the music that we were hearing in raves which were mostly kind of outdoor raves and monday nights at hobbits and different goth goth clubs that were being overrun by ravers and different things so yeah i was just in the uh, in the tornado that was um the summer of love and and the, the musical revolution that happened in during that period Mm. And so when was it that you first became interested more in the music production side and DJing and when did you start to take that more seriously? DJing early 90s um, and then it was probably a good couple of years uh, before I started to realise that actually I could have a go at trying to make music. So I met my production partner uh, Justin Harris back then who we went on to form Freaks with and he was someone that was coming to the university where I was DJing at Middlesex Uni and he was like oh I've got a studio why don't you come and make some music and then that sort of progressed into our uh, relationship which became sort of Freaks and stuff so that was me sort of I, I, actually I have no uh, musical um history in regards to playing instruments or doing any of those things but I could use a sampler and a drum machine and actually attempt to make something that sounded like a record of some sort so um, it was like okay this is easy I can do this and it was very much a DIY thing and so it kind of that's how it progressed. Okay I see and out of them producing and DJing what do you find yourself doing more of these days? Producing? Mm-hmm. Um, but that's because um, I love DJing, the traveling I have after 30 years of it, um, uh, feel don't feel that I need to do it as much, uh, but I love DJing. I think the two things hand in hand work well together. I think it's really important to have the knowledge of a DJ as a producer and vice versa and I think that's historic throughout a lot of producers um, that you look at whether it be Mark Ronson or or you know a lot of the hip-hop producers and house music dance music producers have all got that kind of DJ DJing savvy as well so I think um, I love both of them equally and in different ways uh, I just the going Going somewhere to DJ is a lot harder than it used to be. Staying in and producing or going to a studio and producing, I find a lot easier as I've got older. And I'm enjoying it more than I've ever done because um, my kind of musical sphere is is growing and, and I enjoy songwriting and I realise that I'm actually okay at it um, and and it's something that I've kind of progressed and I really love doing so but I love DJing so it's a difficult thing to really say either way okay no that's fair enough um and I, I want to ask you as well about classic recordings so I know a gig with Derek Carter yeah. led to you becoming friends of course and then um after this friendship yeah. you decided to strike this up so why did you decide to start it up and um, what were your aims at the time did you feel something was missing or what was your plan then uh, no i think we were on that kind of mission to rule the world i think it was as we were living that life i think as both as djs and we hit it off and we became close friends and derek was living in the uk a lot and 
I think we both had this thing where it's like, let's start a record label. What are we going to call the record label? Let's call it classic. And loads of people are like, you can't call your record label classic. And we were just, you know, bravado was everything. Oh, no, we're fine. It will be, you know, whatever. We'll get it, yeah. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're not listening to you. We're just doing what we want and sort of ego and all of those different things, the confidence of youth and... And and so it it just became a natural thing. Well, let's start a record label with no intention of other than just putting out music that we loved and it having a vehicle for our own music and vehicle for our friends' music. And then it just turned into something far greater than we ever imagined. So how did you adapt to that then, given that perhaps you did it, you know, not for a laugh, but like you said, you wanted to put out music that you liked basically and your mates liked. But when it started oh. to get all this attention, um, how did you deal <laughs> with that? When, when do we start taking it seriously? Yeah, um, yeah we, uh, I, I don't know if we ever did. Um, we we realised that we had to get someone that could run the label and that's where Leon Oakey stepped in, who was a childhood friend that was working in record shops and distribution companies. And then he was like, I'm moving to London, I'll run the label. And then he's now gone on. He runs Hot Creations for Jamie Jones. He runs Records for Radio Slave. He runs Crosstown Rebels for Damien Lazar. So he's gone off and sort of followed a musical path and we're still very dear friends. But he was the person that kind of took the reins early on and then sort of Derek and myself just exclusively did A&R and handed the dats over and everything else and Leon sort of took on the day-to-day stuff and then we realised that it was uh, starting to become something that we needed to employ people and take it a little bit more seriously and sort of it grew off the back of that by organically really I guess. Um, It's what it became. I don't know if we ever went okay now we need to you know this is a business now and um and and that's how we need to treat it it was always like these are great records let's put them out do we both love them yes let's put them out that was kind of always the mantra for us okay well I like that it has that foundation in stuff that you felt proud of that you liked so you're not just selling out yeah. kind of thing or putting any old no. stuff up is what you liked no yeah 100% and it's and it's still very much you know 25 years later carries very much that flag Mm. And um, so I saw Classic Recordings issued its last single in 2006, but I've heard that you've actually got a few projects coming up, though. So what's going on with that? Well, no, actually, what happened was we <laughs> we uh, we two th- the distribution company that we were with went out of business um, really early or, uh, that, during that two period, and we lost a lot of money, and then. Uh, we decided that we were going to liquidate and sort of start again and try and revamp things and revitalize it and different things turned in different ways and um, it, for one reason or another we were kind of just treading water and then Simon Dunmore stepped in and took over uh, Classic and I've been running Classic ever since then so actually Honey Dijon is signed to Classic now, Mark II and we've released close to 100 plus records since 2006 on the label. Um, but it's essentially me, myself that runs the label. Derek stepped out away from everything. Um, and then I've gone on to kind of release a lot of artists such as Midland and um, along with Ellie Escobar, um, with, uh, Honey Dijon, obviously, um, amongst others. So it's very much classic Mark, Mark II is very much in existence and running at full steam. Okay, that's really good to hear. I was wondering what was going on with that because you're obviously talking about working on a lot of projects. I was thinking, yeah. how can it be that it's uh, not active no, in some capacity? So that's great to hear that it is. Yeah. yeah. 
Good. And you, you mentioned um, Justin Harris earlier. So obviously, who you um, it's your production team called Freaks, as you said about earlier. So you started this in 1996. So yeah. different times. You know, what are your memories of founding it? I mean, uh, what were you starting this again with just uh, a similar thing to classic recordings? You wanted to make the music you wanted to make? Or yeah, how did this strike up? It was a slightly different process. It was uh, music for Freaks or Freaks was a vehicle for um, myself and Justin to release music as Freaks. Um, and so it really became exclusively that bar a few third party things. And then we went on and released three albums and then um, The Creeps, which is one of the records on one of the albums, uh, got licensed, remixed, and then we ended up sort of completely without any um, attempt, uh, one for one, one thing led to another and we ended up with a sort of top 10 record, we went to number seven in the UK charts and that was uh, an interesting accident that happened that sort of turned us into a, a bit more of a grown-up enterprise of like, okay, well, do we follow this up with more pop versions of dance music, etc. And I think that was the point where we realised that it wasn't necessarily where we wanted to be. Um, and and it, we went through this cycle of playing as a live band and having multiple people in the band and then going back to being a duo. And then Simon, uh, Simon Justin moved to Cornwall and then now lives in Ibiza. So we ended up kind of parting ways, but just, again, not through like, okay, we're done now. We, we're still very much friends and we've just gone down different paths. So... Um, yeah, that was kind of the process with Freaks. Okay. And, um, well, you know I'm going to ask you about The Creeps, so just for the purposes of our listeners. Uh, yes. The Ministry of Sound obviously later released this into the mainstream yes. with a new vocal. It went to number nine on the UK charts. Yeah. It's number a big nine. song. I think most people will know this uh, track, especially the if they put it on. They Even if they don't think they do, they do, trust me. Yeah. Um, so yeah. <laughs> I've seen as well you've been asked about... I thought this was a, a strange thing that I saw about this, but about selling out almost by these diehard dance fans did you ever see it as that i don't see any problem myself success is success getting the music out there to a bigger audience or do you think they feel they've got a niche kind of hold on the types of music you make i think the the thing the the problem with it all was the way that it came about we didn't like normally if you put a record out and you um you uh, commission a remix and the remix is usually based on what what you where you perceive the record going or what you want it to become and as artists that was something that we were always very much in control of and uh for one reason or another azuli uh who were controlling the record at the time got a remix done without uh, our consent and the vandalism remix was the mix that um came out in australia and we discovered that it suddenly became this huge thing and it was kind of out of our control and it was essentially a record that just changed the beats on the baseline and so we got a lot of interest around that particular version of the record and then uh, ministry of sound picked that version of the record and they wanted to put a top line on it and then they got a top line done which we weren't into and we decided to go in and write the top line on the record uh, because uh, as writers it would have been in our interest financially to do that um, and so we did that and then the rest kind of became uh, the record that it became uh, which was not necessarily the record we set out to make um, and so the process of that was and then alongside of that we never for one reason or another Azuli went out of business um, and we never really saw any 
of the money that came from that bar sort of MCPS and PPL, but not royalties. So it's unfortunately, it's a bit tarnished. But what I did realise during all of that was that becoming a pop act was not for me, um, especially when it was being a pop act that was uh, in that happened in a way that was not really how we intended um, mm. it to happen. And it wasn't really under our watch and under with our creativity. So it was a really, I was thinking about it the other day, it was a really unusual period for me because I've, success has always come by accident and I've always followed that as a never try and make something to have in commercial success like that if you apply that that some people can do it some people are very good at it but for that that application and that process to making music should never be go let's go and write a hit because that's you can put yourself into a very uh difficult creative space and I think what happened was the pressure was on us after that record of what was an accidental hit to us to make more hits and we were not those people I don't think for one reason or another and I think it pushed us and pulled us in a lot of different ways and the outcome of that I think was for me to go and dig myself back into a hole underground and start again in a different process and different thought process um, to where I'm at now which is having success with records like Honey's record, Not About You, which, uh, you know, got playlisted on Radio 1 and different things, but those records have always come from us just wanting to write a record that sounded like that, not because we wanted so many success by it mm-hmm. in a different way. And the same approach was, was with Horsemeat Disco and Kathy Sledge and all those different things. So, yeah, there you go. That's the version of, of, of The Creeps and what it became and, and kind of what it means to me. And I still... Weirdly, I still don't know if I'm... I have a weird attachment to that record. And a lot of people don't understand it, but I guess that explains a lot. No, that Uh, does explain it. And um, now I can see, uh, considering the work you've done, uh, but then when you went on to do some solo stuff, so I can kind of see why, if you wanted to move away from some of that stuff or what you felt like perhaps was a direction you were being pushed in just because of the success of it. Um, It makes perfect sense, yeah. Um, So you did, um, so your first album was the the Difference Engine. So this moved away from the typical house sound. So was that a deliberate move from you to go towards this more experimental, ambient kind of sound? We were in a... I think dance music was in a really interesting place at that point. I was feeling very uninspired. Um, it was a reaction to that situation, which was, uh, I think, minimal, was around. And I was being kind of, I was a little confused by what it all meant and whether I was really that bothered with it. And then across to, I was enjoying the output of Crosstown Rebels and Records and those labels. and And so I just almost kind of it was like a rebirth thing it was like okay go let let me try something else and do something else and see what happens and that was always been the approach that I've taken to a lot of music that I do it's like okay well you know I'm I'm feeling this now I'm gonna I'm gonna do this it was the same with power dance it was the same with uh producing Damien Lazarus's album and lots of different Mm -hmm. things I'm like okay well I can put my head in a different space now and let's see what happens so um yeah, so it it was it was a it was a subconscious effort um, at trying to reposition my, but I was not purposely repositioning myself, but putting myself in a different place where I felt a little bit more of an alignment with. 
mm-hmm. at, yep. at that time. Yes, yes, of course. And then, um, so I know one of your standout moments is The Darkest Secret. So um, for anyone that doesn't know, this is a track featuring Earl Gateshead of Trojan Sound System, which is reminiscent of the 70s punk poet John Cooper Clark. So yeah. I want to know, why was Earl an obvious choice to work with? And I need to know, I think, as well about writing this track in an ice cream shop in Chalk Farm, because that's just bizarre, and I love that. So let's hear about that. <laughs> we um, We... Earl used to, so I used to do a, a regular Wednesday night with uh, Kenny Hawkes, uh, who was my DJ partner, who, who sadly uh, died um, uh, 11 years ago now. But Earl used to come down to the Wednesday night at Barumba regularly, and I got to know him through that. And he always, um, I was always a little mesmerized by him, he's such an unusual character. And so. Uh, I'd written this track and was trying to figure out what it was and what it what, what I wanted it to be and then I got in touch with Earl and we met up and yeah we basically most of the things that I write come from conversation what I've realized with people that I share some kind of alignment with and a mental uh, synergy with and what I've learned to realize now as a producer of other people's music um that conversation is everything. I mean, you, I could sit and have a conversation for two days before actually making a record. It's what comes out of the conversations that actually makes the record. So, um, yeah, that was really that beginning of those that thought process for me. It was like, oh, okay, this is this is interesting, and this is how this becomes this, and this is what this is. And so, yeah, that was kind of how that record was born. I can't really remember the context of the conversation because it's quite a long time ago now, but um, usually it's the inner workings of, of creative and dark minds and things that are going on in our lives at those periods in time. Yes, and uh, meeting in an ice cream shop, of all things. I mean, and why not? There's the, and there's the legendary ice cream shop in Camden, so which is you know, obviously sometimes weird things happen in weird places. They so do, they, indeed. Uh, and what flavour did you get? Can you remember? <laughs> Ooh, I have no idea. Oh, I didn't know if you had a tried and tested one that you always go for. You never know. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. that, was a, that was a long time ago now. Yeah. <laughs> What about um, DJing? So obviously you travel the world, or should I say usually, under non-COVID yeah. circumstances. So what's been going on with all the live shows? Have you started up again? Yes, yeah, we did. Uh, we hit the ground running with Defected Croatia in August, um, which is our annual festival um, in Tisno. And it was very touch and go whether it was going to happen, and it did happen. And that was the beginning of uh, what was a lot of gigs, um, which was that was an, actually an incredible event. And then from that on, we did uh, various different things. I've got warehouse projects coming up, um, Printworks, New Year's day and um somewhere i'm playing birch community with horsemeat disco new year's eve so yeah there's that there, there, i'm very fortunate to be able to pick and choose what i want to do and i don't generally just take the gig for the sake of a gig now i think it has to really mean something to me um unless obviously someone comes and offers you a million pounds to go and dj in of the top of a mountain that's a different that's a different I, anyone that could have those conversations say yeah no i'm not doing that gig that's a different thing but the um but for the most part 99% of it i do gigs because uh it's something that i really really want to do um so that's not necessarily playing every weekend twice a week um because i've just not got the mental space for that 
Um, mm. Travel anxiety is something that I've had to deal with for the last 10, 11 years, maybe even longer. Um, and I'm sober. I've been sober for 10, 11 years. So I have to, a lot of different factors that involve mental health mm -hmm. and, uh, that I apply to all of my work now, uh, which is vitally important. Yeah, absolutely. You've got to do what works for you, haven't you? And you know what's best for you and you've done, you know, yeah. tons of touring by the sounds of it and you just want to pick and choose what you want yeah. now. You don't need to push it to the extremes of how it used to be. That's probably quite a nice place to be in. Yes, it is. Yeah. Congratulations. So um, on to, I guess, the music production side of things. So, so much has changed with the music industry since you founded Freaks, for instance, in the 90s. So what are the biggest changes or some of the biggest changes I should say that you've had to adapt to over the years I mean there have been many 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 <laughs> yeah yeah it was interesting actually because I came across some um some floppy disks that I found and I was thinking about this because I was I've been always been a Cubase user um and that's what I started on that's what I learned on we had an Atari um, and we were running Cubase on an Atari. That was the Freaks, the beginning of Freaks. And so there was no, uh, I, I can't even remember what the storage we was. We were, we, we would just be tracking straight to DAT. So we were coming through a mixing desk and straight to DAT. And then you were essentially just using the Atari to sequence MIDI. Uh, with all the outboard and then arrange on your MIDI pages. So everything was the dreaded MIDI um, and everything was basically done on uh, just things that we'd saved enough money up to buy or friends had donated to us and different things and we sort of had a mishmash of studio that sort of made freaks and what it became, a couple of samplers, uh, Akai S950s and S900s, uh, an old Soundcraft mixing desk which was given to us by the Beloved, uh, we had a mixing desk from Matthew Herbert at one point. We had some Elise's monitors, and it was very, very DIY, although it took up a lot of space, I have to say. but <laughs> Yeah, no um, doubt. <laughs> yeah, and that, and that was kind of the process. Okay, we've got an idea running on the board, and this sounds good, and let's sort of half arrange it in... Atari and the Atari half do it on the mixing desk and put it all onto DAT and sometimes it was 15-20 minutes and then you do your edits afterwards if you were able to um, but yeah and then that sort of the, then the computers started to get bigger and that was like okay now we can start to record audio into the computer and I, honestly this just blows my mind that I was I don't think about it but the idea of not being able not not even having hard drive storage in my lifetime is kind of mad. That makes me feel old. <laughs> uh, my kid, I tell my kids these things. They went, what are you talking about? You didn't have a hard drive. But, I mean, you've um, already said about floppy disks. I mean, there's a generation that don't even know what those are now. Well, I've got all the original <laughs> samples on my... I've still got my S950 here in front of me, actually, which I, which I fire up every now and again, but... In all honesty, now the things that you can do um, are—it's insane, really. It's insane, but yeah. So we just, Justin and myself, sort of progressed as technology got better. We sort of, and we had more money to invest in that. We started to do that, so we were able to kind of 
track into the computer and then you're able to track in stems in the computer and then you uad universal audio stuff appeared and we got that and that meant we could have plugins and it wasn't using all the processing power and and so it just and then there were you know soft synths and stuff like reason and recycle and you know running we worked on reason for years making music which was quite mad along with cubase you know sync to cubase um um, and then, yeah, and then it just got bigger and better and more streamlined. And then, but but actually, never. I only only ended up sort of mixing, starting to move to mixing in the computer, um, but but still running a lot of outboard, which I still do. Um, but then I realised that I wasn't a very good mix engineer, so I've handed that over to someone, Lance Tassadi, who's um, who's that allows me to focus on making music and not um, try and make things not have the science of uh, i know that i know how to make a demo sound good mm. but having someone to finish it is a very different thing um that free freed up a lot of creative space um but yeah it's um and then within all of that i worked with cubase and gone through every single version one after the other like okay there's a new one what does this do okay there's a new one what does this do and it got bigger and better and shinier and there were more colors and more things going on in it that you could do and and so with that the kind of workflow uh, workflow expanded and changed mm. so which um version of cubase are you using now i'm on uh, 11 oh you're up to um, date nice one yes yeah 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 absolutely completely up to date and uh, yeah and i it's it's quite funny actually because Within dance music, if you people say, "Oh, what do you use?" I mean, for the most part, the conversations you have, especially over at the Defected HQ, where we have people coming in to use the studios there, we have Pro Tools, Ableton, Logic, and Cubase, and I mean, almost never it would be Cubase users um, within the sort of younger sphere because they're all on Ableton or some are on Logic, um, but for the most part, Ableton. Um, so when I actually am driving the sessions and I'm using Cubase and then you start to show people the things that Cubase does, everyone's just suddenly like, oh, wow, okay, you can't do this in Logic or you can't do this in Pro Tools or you can't do this in Ableton. Um, and 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 now I think what's happened is that they've added and implemented all the different things that a lot of those uh, doors could do um, better. And And then on top of that, you have, the array of soft synths and and different things and it, I like it because I've always been a fan of doing di- things completely. I've been I'm I'm very con- contrary. I, I like to if someone's into something or doing something, I always want to do it differently. Um, if everyone's using this drum machine, I always want to find a drum machine that no one else is using. If everyone's okay. using it because it just makes you it puts your mark on things it makes you different and i think cubase has enabled that for me actually of being allowing me to put my stamp on dance music in my own way using something that everyone else uses which is which is a great thing mm. yeah it's fantastic you've got to have something that you know just exactly how to use it and it suits you yeah. and you're just used to it, it sounds yeah. like you've pretty much grown up with it then throughout your career through its yeah. iterations and yeah. your music yeah it's 25 25 years or so that's quite a long time yeah um and now we're in a, a place where from a writing perspective and the the ability to be able to warp and change the tempo of music this secret pop project that we've been working on 
doing those kind of things are very much a, like, can we listen to this at 110 BPM? Can we listen to this at 120 BPM? Okay, and then you just walk, you just move everything, and uh, that's great. And then I do a huge amount of vocal tracking, and for that, um, there's a lot of things in that that make it really easy for me to work quickly um, with vocal tracking and producing. Mm, that's great to hear and um so what about have you got any other plans i know we're kind of winding up towards the end of the year now have you got much on in terms of gigs or are you just solidly going to be working on all this new music until let's say up until christmas sort of time no i have uh i, I mentioned earlier warehouse projects so i've got new year's eve new year's oh, day yeah, that'll be good and then have a lot of uh honey related stuff that kind of leads into the new year and then um yeah, and then things that I can't talk about, which is which is so massively frustrating. But yeah, the new year is going to be very exciting. So beyond Honey's album, um, and then uh, along with that, some maybe get some time to work on some of my own music. It doesn't really happen very often. Well, it doesn't um, sound like you've got much time to be honest at the moment. No, I don't blame you. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I'm very much involved in a lot of the defected. Um, we're doing writing camps. We've got this new studio space um, in the basement of defected, um, which I am basically kind of spearheading a lot of the various things that go on there, which is involves bringing artists through um, that are signed to the label and uh, putting them with songwriters and top liners and just sort of mentoring. And that side of things has been really fun to do because it's taking me outside of my personal comfort zone putting me in different places and allowing me to kind of exec produce and look over projects and kind of pass on my advice for kind of recording techniques and 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 the ability to kind of help with songwriting and different things so that part of it is really exciting because we have this whole uh, basement which we adapted during um the pandemic and during lockdown which is you know a capacity to have 100 150 people down there with the sound system and dj streaming which we've defected has done all through lockdown along with the kind of writing two writing spaces vocal booth etc so that's been uh, that's been really fun to do and that's great you're able to pass the torch and your skills on yeah. to other people as well yeah. fantastic and we, we also as a record label as a dance music record label realize that waiting for music to come through the door rather than sort of applying the Motown process to making music which is having a place where you could stimulate the creativity and actually help artists make records within the record label itself is something that doesn't happen uh, within independent labels that often so that's been really great I mean that's actually been amazing to do. Okay and um, for whenever this top secret news is allowed to be released where should people <laughs> look to find out what this is in the new year? Will it be on your website or...? I can't even say. Can't I even can't. Say. Oh, I'm really intrigued now. Okay, well, they'll find out. People will find out, whatever it is, won't yes, they? Yes, they will, yeah. You let yeah. us know. Um, okay. Yeah. All right, Luke. Yeah. Um, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been such a pleasure to talk to you and find out well, all about your career and your projects you. that we all know and love and, you know, what's going on with you and what's going to be going on with you for in the next year, the mysterious uh, news that you've got. I look forward to seeing <laughs> what it is. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, it's great to talk to you. <laughs> you too. Thank you so much. Um, have a wonderful evening. And you. Bye. Right. Bye, Luke. Bye. Headliner Radio, supporting the creative community.